there becomes a point in your career, I think, where like, of course, you can get that publication that you also got five years ago. Like, of course, you're always going to be able to get this, but like saying no, and maybe that means that that project doesn't get placed, and it just lives on your website. But I think that you have to be willing to say no to the wrong stuff. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the editor in chief of Business of Home. Welcome to Trade Tales. On every episode, I'll be talking to interior designers about nurturing creativity, finding their firm's financial footing, setting goals, and discovering their own version of success as a result. My guest today is a designer who's managed to level up her business while keeping her team small. We talked about how she's pulled it off, and there's also some great insight into the right questions to ask to find out if a new client really is a good fit. I know you'll get a lot out of it, so stick around. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. This podcast was sponsored by BuildLane. BuildLane knows it's a challenging time to be an interior designer, and that's why they're focused on one thing, making it easier for you to create custom furniture. Simply visit buildlane.com, create your free account, and discover just how easy it can be to bring your custom furniture visions to life. From sofas and settees to consoles and case goods, the BuildLane capabilities are as boundless as your imagination. And because the entire process is online, you have the freedom to work on your schedule. BuildLane isn't just technology, it's a team. And the shop artists, craftspeople, project managers, and shipping pros are all dedicated to helping you create something that will dazzle you and dazzle your client too. BuildLane, it's custom made easy. Visit buildlane.com and enter the promo code TRADETALES250 to save $250 on your first order. This podcast is also brought to you by Gabby, where livable luxury is more than a look. Gabby's design team curates the most exquisite selection of designs across all furniture categories with customizable features and fabrics to suit every setting. Partner with Gabby to provide your clients with great style, service, and all the resources needed to create beautiful living spaces. Discover Gabby online to access details and dimensions, product photos, and real-time product availability. For a special offer on your next order, go to gabbyhome.com boh. I remember my fifth grade bedroom very well. I had, you know, decorated a dresser, you know, with kind of a color blocking paint, carry that over to my built-in desk. And then I think I did it on my headboard, a bedspread to match. And then I remember doing my seventh grade bedroom as well. And it had kind of an Egyptian theme. I think I had like dusty red walls and a gold colored <laughs> duvet cover. I think my taste has changed a little bit, safe to say. <laughs> That's Heidi Kellier. She always loved to decorate, but she grew up thinking she'd have a career in medicine, a doctor, or maybe a role in public health. After school, Heidi realized that wasn't the path for her, and she started searching for the right fit. You know, I did brief stints in acupuncture school and nursing school, and, you know, I thought I wanted to own a coffee shop and be a scuba diving instructor, and, I mean, I have really, <laughs> it's kind of like a do-it-all kind of thing. Um, you know, the big days of design blogs is when I first really started to, like, get very interested in it. You know, I started buying magazines and was reading all the blogs back in the day. And um, I started my own blog and that was really what started it. And, you know, blogging is a lot of work. So I think I realized that at that point, and I was like, this isn't really what I want to be doing either. Like I really, I think at that point, understood that I wanted to be creating spaces instead of talking about them. To get her feet wet, Heidi looked around for design work in the Bay Area. 
Her blog got her in the door with an established San Francisco designer. And she, you know, we aesthetically were very aligned. She had seen my blog and my blog was literally the only experience that I had. And I think she was, you know, willing to take a chance on me. But I, I mean, I didn't even know any, I knew nothing. You know, I remember her asking me something about a CFA and I was like, I don't, what's a CFA? <laughs> Heidi took a few more jobs, working for another designer, for a showroom and doing projects for home polish here and there. Then she had to start all over again when she and her husband moved to Seattle. It turned out to be a blessing in disguise. I like did a house pro ad targeted towards Seattle like months before we moved. And I got some clients from that. And it really, it really just like took off. Like it's hard to sit. Cause I know now I think about if I ever relocated my business, like I would feel so scared to do that. But it was like, so it was just, as soon as I moved, it was like everything cracked open. I wanted to talk to Heidi to hear about how she's leveling up her business while keeping her team small and the five questions she asks every potential client to find out if they're a good fit. For you, what were early moments in your firm that maybe tested you as an entrepreneur or business owner? I mean, it's always been for me trying to figure out how to manage the flow of work because I'm very much a yes person, Mm -hmm. Um, especially over the past kind of five or six years of like when to say no, what the right projects are, um, when to kind of level up, you know, like when you reach the point where I say like, I would have taken that project maybe a few months ago, but like now that project might not be a good fit, you know, kind of simultaneously with that, it's been, you know, it's always been a little bit of a pain point to try to figure out the process of, do I want employees? Do I not want employees? Mm -hmm. Do I work with independent contractors and how much help do I need? And, um, that continues to be a, challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you were talking about, you know, figuring out how to manage the flow of work. One of the things that's interesting to me about, you know, running a design firm is that maybe you take on a job that's going to last a year and you could have a radically different business by the mm-hmm. time that project finishes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I mean, this, you know, this has never been more highlighted than it is like in this moment because mm-hmm. COVID has caused so many delays, you know, in every single way. But, you know, we have projects now that are still ongoing or just completing that were supposed to be done like last year. And so much has honestly changed with my business in the past year. So it has been kind of, yeah, really trying to figure out. And I've had to juggle a lot of, you know, changing deadlines or, you know, turning away clients that maybe I had thought would be a good fit a year ago, but are no longer a fit. And yeah, it is definitely something that's in flux right now. What changed for you? I mean, two years ago, I was still saying yes to pretty much everything. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if as long as they had like a budget that was like mildly realistic, maybe <laughs> not even totally realistic. <laughs> um, you know, I would take it on. I would say yes to everything, just a kitchen, just a bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, a, a room, you know, smaller budgets. Like I just was still two years ago, feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Mm-hmm. I just was very much you know, still felt like I was very much starting out still. Um, And I think even up until a year ago, I mean, even a year ago, I remember saying like, I would still take on just a kitchen Uh if the budget's right or whatever. And that has quickly changed now because I've very much learned over the past year that the smaller projects are just as much work. Yeah. Um, If not more, you know, the projects that are just a kitchen, sometimes I'm like, I have 155 emails for this kitchen and (laughs) I have this five bedroom, 7,000 square foot house and I've only got 70 emails. So (laughs) It's yeah. Why is that? Or how, how does that happen? The bigger budget 
projects that are huge, massive scopes of work, and you're doing the whole house top to bottom, or it's a new build, and you're furnishing the whole thing or whatever, you know, the details, like, I'm always hyper focused on the details and the builder is but like the client doesn't have, you know, does not have the bandwidth to be like, Oh, wait, but what about the hinge on the door? You know, like, (laughs) what is that gonna look like? Let's talk about it for three hours. Yeah. Um, But someone who's doing just a kitchen, and maybe has been saving up for that kitchen for five years, and has been thinking about it, you know, for so long, like those projects, feel very, very important. And um, the amount of time that people have to spend on those little details is much more. Is the end result different then? Mm -mm. (laughs) Oh, my my goodness. No, I think sometimes the end result is worse. I mean, you know, I always the perfect example for me always is, you know, um, we have had a big project, a new build on Fox Island. It's the Fox Island project on our site. It's the biggest project I've ever done. But I honestly think, and I just sound like absolutely scandalous. I think we had like maybe six site visits the entire time. That's so funny. It's so interesting. And I really was, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. You know, I think Mm -hmm. I just had this realization a few months ago, where I was like, you can't do the small projects anymore, because they just Mm -hmm. eat up so much bandwidth. What did you look at to decide what you say no to? So I have a, you know, it's very funny, because I look (laughs) back even like a year and a half ago, and I think people would reach out to me and like, I didn't have a formula of what I would even ask them. Or, you know, I was very vague about like, oh, what's the project? And like, maybe, you know, didn't have like a set of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really the fact-finding list, yeah. Minimal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then now it's very formulaic. You know, I send the same questions. You know, someone sends an inquiry. I respond back with these five questions. And then, you know, those five questions will pretty much tell me the answer. I have a minimum now for projects. Oh, so what, um, are your, what's, what are your five questions? I'm guessing one of them is budget. Yeah. So it's where's the project located? What is the scope of work? Do you have a budget in mind? Are you including furnishings? And what is your timeline? That's the tools you need to make a decision. It is. It generally starts enough of a conversation that I can make a decision. I mean, because it's very, you know, if someone responds back and says, oh, the scope of work is a full kitchen renovation, we have a $25,000 budget that is instantly not going to be a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. And I know that now. And maybe that's a good fit for somebody else. I'm, you know, it's just not a good fit for me. So that weeds that out instantly. And, you know, sometimes the conversation is longer than that. But I also have found that those five questions are very telling because, you know, so much of this job is about relationships and your relationships mm-hmm. with your clients and how that's how you're going to work together. And, you know, I have found right off the bat, like some people don't want to answer those questions or they won't give you answers to those questions. Mm. Um, and that's a really good indicator for me. <laughs> that this might be problematic. I wonder who those clients are right for. <laughs> I wonder that too. Like I'm like, well, sometimes I'm like, we've now gone back and forth three times and you still haven't been able to answer what the scope of work is. Like I'm still confused. <laughs> Is is there like a is there a place that you'll kind of wiggle a little bit, or are you really looking for sort of a perfect five out of five fit? I don't know if there's a perfect fit. I mean, and I will say, I was just having this conversation with someone the other day. Like, there have been a few projects in my career that I was either like, oh, red flags, or I don't think this is going to be a good fit, or this client's going to be really difficult to work with, and they've been like a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is really, I think it is hard to gauge. And, you know, I hear other designers talk about this, that like, you know, they know right off the bat if the client's going to be bad or good. And I just don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, at this point, I'm pretty firm. I think, you know, I don't know how all of the other designers in the world are feeling right now, but I think I'm, you know, feeling a little bit fried and tired just because of the year and, you know, how much COVID has changed the industry. So I'm pretty firm no right now, unless it's a really good fit. I've learned so much about, you know, expending creative energy and the cost of that when it doesn't come to fruition. And I really want to be 
doing projects that are serious, that the clients have a strong desire to bring to life and are heavily invested in. We're taking a quick break from the podcast to remind you about BuildLane. BuildLane is how busy designers do custom furniture. Log on to the site from anywhere in the world, send in a drawing, a sketch, or even just an idea, and the team there will help you create something your client will love. Visit buildlane.com and enter the promo code TRADETALES250 to save $250 on your first order. You talk about expending creative energy. Were there times when you were kind of giving creatively and then things didn't come together? So many times. <laughs> what, when does that happen or how does that, what does that look like? Oh, I mean, so there's, I think there's a variety of different ways it happens. I mean, the first way it happens is when you design a project and then it slowly gets taken apart piece by piece until it looks very different. I think the other ones are budget related. Um, mm-hmm. Either the client has decided they don't want to spend that or the scope of work becomes too much and the budget balloons and they don't want to do that. I, I think about this a lot that there's so many steps to getting a project to fruition in this job. You know, you have to design it, they have to like the design, you have to plan the budget, they have to approve the budget, then you have to like work to bring it to life. And there's so many things along that path that can change. So I, I mean, I think it's fairly frequent. I mean, the projects that we, you know, that I design in full and the client literally says, great, everything looks great, except for maybe, you know, change five things and then the budget looks great, let's do it. That's not like it's 90% of the projects, you know, that's... <laughs> I wish it was, but it's- I, say, I think we all try and give like the, the, we all perpetuate the illusion, right? That that's how it yeah. always happens. Yeah. This so, is my I process. Mean, they say yes, then mm-hmm. we build it. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think that too. I'm like, is this happened to other designers? But I know it happens to every designer that I know personally. So it has to happen to other people as well. But yeah, there is a perception in the industry that like, this is how it goes. And yeah, we shoot everything that we work on and every client approves everything. And I'm like, that's just not my experience. <laughs> How can you troubleshoot that? How can you, what can you change to kind of protect some of that creative energy? So, you know, there, I talk to a lot, a lot, you know, with other designers that I'm friends with about this. Um, You know, some designers have in their contracts, you know, there's only a certain amount of revisions they'll do. And I've started Mm -hmm. to kind of implement that a little bit. And I definitely am at the point now where creatively, you know, if if it's an aesthetic thing or something, like I will push back if I feel like we're getting to the point where the design's starting to kind of fall apart. Um, mm-hmm. if it's budget, it's a little trickier, you know, because you don't, budget's a sticky thing, you know, it's personal and, um, you can't be like, no, actually your budget yeah. has to be X number bigger. Yeah. yeah. No, you are going to buy this $25,000 <laughs> chandelier. <laughs> you can't afford it. Um, there's, you know, it's a constant struggle of like, you know, setting expectations, maintaining them, you know, clients want to, they look at your site and they see a room and they get in their head of like what that costs. And it's always more what it costs to do that. And there's, you know, tax and freight, which is exorbitant right now. So, you know, setting expectations and sticking to them, especially during COVID is very, very tricky ordeal. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the creative side, which is something that I have struggled with the past year, just because you do kind of, you know, you put yourself out there, it's a personal thing. Um, You know, when I'm designing a project, I'm like deep, deep into it. And it's taking, you know, I fall in love with them. You know, I love Mm -hmm. the house. I can see it in my mind. I can see it in the photographs. And when it doesn't happen or when it changes by 50% and it, it just, you know, it becomes a little bit heartbreaking. So I do, you know, try to push back a little bit now where I um, try to weed out clients that say like, Oh, we want to see four different options for each dining table. You know, that's not something <laughs> that, that I will do. How do clients take that pushback to say, no, I actually do think what I'm telling you is the best thing for your project. 
How does that go over? Mm. The more you get published mm-hmm. or, you know, other people Instagram your work or your clients kind of start trusting you more, which is like, for me, one of the biggest benefits of getting published because they are willing to like relinquish a little more control and they want, you know, I have clients now that come to us and say like, we want to see your vision. Like we want a Heidi house that, and I'm like, fantastic. That's wonderful because that for me is a good fit. I'll say that's um, the client we're saying yes to now, right? That's the <laughs> client for sure. <laughs> Even if it's just a bathroom. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> But I do, um, I, you have to really judge your client too, because there are clients who you can only push back so far. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you do reach a point as a designer where you're like, I'm going to let this go now. Like this mm-hmm. is, I had all these dreams in my head. It was going to look like this and, you know, be published here and blah, blah, blah. And now it's not. And mm-hmm. I might not ever shoot it. And this is the way this is going to go. And maybe it's just going to be a moneymaker. You have to make that decision in your mind and then just go with that direction. Mm-hmm. There are clients that, you know, are like more creatively invested, I think, and more willing to take risks. And like, those are the clients that I'll push back a little and say like, no, this is the right, mm-hmm. this is the right choice. You should do this chandelier or whatever, you know, as long as it's, you know, on budget, whatever it is, like they, you just have to know the client, I think. And I have reached a point, you know, where clients will send me, you know, 150 questions or change modify. We want to see a different side table for every side table in the house or whatever it is. And at that point, I will just put it down and say, I'm I'm willing to show you one more revision. And then that's where it stops. Mm -hmm. I say the language around that to me, the the idea of limiting the number of revisions in your contract Mm -hmm. always felt really complicated or sort of that feels like a hard, that feels like a hard thing to say, you know, no, I don't want to show you anymore. But Hearing your version of that also makes so much sense that you're like, no, you can't see 150 side tables. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) That's why I think there's a reasonable number to ask. And, but I do agree with you. It is complicated. And like, that's why I have never had verbiage in my contract around it because Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know, where does it stop? And like, sometimes the clients bring great ideas to the table. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you're like, what about this side table? I'm like, I love that one even more. So it's, it's a very sticky Thing. Yeah. I say, I say, I'm imagining some people are good collaborators and some people yes. take the wind out of your sails. A hundred percent. Yep. You mentioned earlier this idea of kind of figuring out when to level up. How, what kind of conscious choices are you making to keep elevating your business? I mean, I think at this point it is about exposure. So mm-hmm. what that looks like. I've always been really conscious about like using the same photographer and getting my workshop professionally and um, keeping the look consistent. And then I think it's also just about like where you're choosing to be published and what you'll be quoted for and, you know, what you're going to be associated with. Like, I think that becomes quite important. How did you come to that conclusion about kind of picking and choosing where you want to be and what you want to speak on? Oh, oh, media. Oh, it's so interesting. That, that's been an interesting progression. But I've had a bit of experience. You know, I've been published a f- a, in a different mm-hmm. variety of places, which has been really good because you learn what the feedback is from each of those experiences. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really telling. Um, so, you know, the push is always to like when I be published nationally in a magazine, you know, which is great for your ego. And but the expo- <laughs> I mean, you're not getting clients from it, to be honest. So um, but some things have been surprising, you know, like I had a was in Wall Street Journal, I think it was earlier this year. And like, that was a huge exposure for me. I got so much, you know, business from that. And that really leveled me up in a way that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard that before about the journal, oh, which I think is interesting. Because all the people who don't know that much about design, but want to spend money on design, read the weekend journal. Yeah. I mean, I was literally floored. I was like, I, you know, I got the placement I wasn't even that excited about. It. I was just kind of like, oh, whatever. Wall Street Journal, great. 
And I literally was, I mean, the responses, I mean, like all of my existing clients from all over the country emailed me congratulations. Mm -hmm. Like I got so many quality new client inquiries and every single one was like, saw you in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I was blown away by it. Best placement I've ever had. Are there there press opportunities that you say no to now? Mm Mm-hmm. And how do you pick and choose? I mean, I have like a list of magazines or publications that I'm not interested in working with just because mm-hmm. aesthetically, I don't think it's a good fit. It's not where mm-hmm. I want to represent my brand. I think it is very important if you're trying to level up and get to a different kind of clientele or whatever it is that you're really cognizant of like where you're being, you know, where you're pitching to, where who's picking you up and what that represents for your brand. I mean, if you're trying to get clients that are at the level of like El Decor, Architectural Digest, then, you know, to be published in a different kind of magazine, like isn't going to do a lot to push your brand. I don't think there becomes a point in your career. I think we're like, of course you can get that publication that you also got five years ago. Like, of course you're always gonna be able to get this, but like saying no, and maybe that means that that project doesn't get placed and it just lives on your website. But I think that you have to be willing to say no to the wrong stuff too. How has social media helped your business? And how did you cultivate that community from the outset? It's so interesting because it was not really an intentional thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't start out like intending to grow my Instagram. It was never a goal of mine to like have a big Instagram account or to, it, it really didn't even cross my mind of like that was a way to grow my business or that I would ever get clients from it. When did it take off for you? There was like a moment, I think, um, almost two years ago, like a year and a half ago. And I remember Amber Lewis posted a project, like my kitchen, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was like a frenzy after that because she has so many followers. Um, and then after that, it was like Studio McGee posted something. And then Chris Loves Julia. And like some of these big accounts started posting, you know, Instagram is very much about sharing. So if one person shares it, you know, 55,000 other people see it and then this other big person sees it and then they share it and it becomes this, you know, kind of pass it down kind of thing. And I would say over the past year, like the growth has been big and I've, you know, now I focus on it heavily because I, most of my clients come from there. So Mm -hmm. it's very, very important. When you shifted to say, okay, now this is, you know, this is where my clients are coming from. This is important to me. What changed or what did you start doing differently? It's really funny because I look back at some of my old posts from like two years ago (laughs) and I'm like, ooh, (laughs) I can't believe I posted that. (laughs) What were you, what what would you post before that you would not post now? Oh, just like very, you know, I still do post project progress photos, which I've found people love. Mm -hmm. Um, So I- The ladder in the middle of like the empty room with the painters- like yes, paper on the floor. I do really love it. And I, I love to see them too. So that's why I do it. But I, you know, I try to do those about once a week or once every other week, depending on projects. But other than that, you know, I, I used to post pictures of my kids and like my dog and, um, you know, more lifestyle things. And like, I do not do that anymore. If I do pictures of my kids or my life, it's on stories. Um, and I try to keep my feed very professional. So it's, you know, mostly my photographs that Harris takes for me. And um, I try to keep the look really cohesive. And then I do, you know, a project photo once a week, once every other week. And then I try to do an inspiration photo of like someone else's work that I like. This podcast is brought to you by Gabby, where livable luxury is more than a look. Gabby is the go-to brand for fresh transitional design pieces that strike the perfect balance between form and function. Learn more about Gabby's quick ship program, wholesale tools, and exclusive to-the-trade pricing by visiting Gabby online or at a to-the-trade showroom in Atlanta, High Point, Dallas, or Chicago. For a special offer on your next order, go to gabbyhome.com slash BOH. How do you approach your relationship with clients, kind of on a personal level? I definitely keep it professional. I always try to 
at least have fun with it. I like clients that are like, you know, can enjoy the process a little bit, but I'm not the person that's like going out to lunch with her clients or <laughs> meeting for coffee. Um, I'm not like a weekly site meeting designer. You know, I like to get to know them at the beginning of the project and then throughout the project, but I try to keep it pretty professional. These aren't like lifelong friends at the end. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's probably bad to say. And I will say I stay close with so many of my clients. I mean, I've been working with many of them for years and years, three, four Mm -hmm. projects now, and we have a wonderful working relationship. And, you know, I'll say, you know, reach out on holidays or birthdays or whatever it is in the same. And, but it's not people that I'm, you know, becoming lifelong friends with and traveling on vacation with and you know mm-hmm. I like to have a line yep has that line changed as your business has grown yes I mean I think now I'm just more protective of my privacy and um you know I've learned that that client relationship is um a fragile thing I think you know and it's a stressful renovations and builds and all you know <laughs> dealing with things for big budgets like it's mm-hmm. stressful you know like it, you know a client's gonna get upset at some point in the project it, you know whether it's with you or the contractor or the timeline or the but whatever it is like they're you know it's just a stressful process and I just don't want to mix it like I just want to be able to keep it professional and um, to be able to respond in a way that feels professional and I mean, I think some people think like, oh, you're a designer, like that's a fun job and it's easy and you're just like chit-chatting and, you know, going to install some pillows and hanging out for some and coffee. you carry and, like, a tape measure everywhere you go. Yeah. yeah, totally. Just measure it out real quick and drop some elevations. But it's just not like that. It's a very, I think it's a very professional job and it needs to be treated like that. I mean, I wish it could be more casual, but it's just not. <laughs> you said, you know, the client relationship is fragile. How do you... What do you do to to nurture that and to make clients feel supported? I try to be as transparent as possible. Um, I think that's so important, you know, setting trust from the outset and setting parameters around this is how this is going to work. You know, lay, I lay things out. So like, this is what the schedule is going to look like. This is what your expectations are going to be. You know, these are the conversations around budget, all of this. But, you know, the thing is with this industry is like on every single level, you're dealing with people. So, you know, you're dealing with clients that are people, you're dealing with contractors that are people, (laughs) everyone that works behind a desk at a showroom is a person. And like, Mm -hmm. that means that we all make mistakes. So there, you know, there's going to become a point in any project. I've never had a perfect project. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't, designers that do like that's amazing but it's yet to happen to me so it's just figuring out how to manage it and you know for me that means being all over situations as they happen you know I've learned by this point in my career that if you just need to throw some money at it just throw some money at it it's just get it you know fix it do it as quickly as you can you know let the client know as much as they need to and and no more you talked about budget a little bit how has the way you talk about money with clients changed I'm definitely more upfront with it um but you know it's interesting because some clients don't want to give you a budget Mm -hmm. um or they want to give you a budget that's not true yeah (laughs) (laughs) so or they give you a budget and they backtrack on it when they actually see the costs um there are so many things with budgets it's a constantly this is a constant source of like learning for me. Conversations around money have to be as frank as possible. You know, this is what things cost. This is what you can expect. You know, this is what freight costs, whatever it is, because there's always unexpected things that come up. But I think shying away from it is where things go south, I think, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, if you tell a client like that couch is, we're just going to specify a sofa, it's going to be $5,000 and the sofa is $20,000. Like that's that's obviously not going to work. Um, but budget conversations are always 
I always, you know, I talk to other designers about this all the time. It's the trickiest, okay. it has to be the trickiest part of the job. And I would say, and it's not like you can just have that conversation once and get it out of the way. Oh, it is an ongoing. That's mm-hmm. one of those painful things about it is that it's <laughs> ongoing throughout the entire project. And, you know, especially, you know, as you work with, you know, projects that are bigger and they go on for a period of several years or whatever, you know, like you notice like the scope gets added on to. So, you know, clients are, oh, let's add on that other bedroom or we want to do the beds here. Or we want to do art for here. And, you know, the budget escalates so quickly at that point. But so you get to a point where like the budget succeeded what they set out. And then they realize there becomes a point where maybe the client realizes like, whoa, I've spent this much money I didn't realize. And, you know, I think the first instinct is to always like come back and blame the designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the scope creep thing is always so interesting because you're like, but the, you're, I'm just doing what you asked me to do. Mm-hmm. But the budget just, conti- it, you're right, it continually comes up throughout the in- entire project. When, when scope creep sets in, how does that change what you're billing for or the way that you bill your clients? So I don't bill project-based, I bill hourly. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's, makes it easy to say yes, I'm guessing? 100%, yes. And I will say it's been, you know, it is interesting because obviously, you know, scope creep is good and bad. Um, <laughs> but, you know, especially if you're billing hourly, like it's not like I'm renegotiating a contract. That sounds like a nightmare to me. So I don't know how people do that. But, you know, I'm just adding, okay, well, the, you know, we'll add this on and it's the hours. But, you know, because I am so formulaic about what my schedule looks like and how projects get presented, you know, clients come back after you've presented, you know, a four-story house. You've been working on the design for two and a half months and they say, oh, we want to add on these other two rooms. And I'm like, well, you need to get in line then behind all of these calendar, you know, because I have the date set for the next six months for presentations. So, you know, with COVID, there's been so much scope creep because people have been in their houses and things have changed and they have funds that they were going to allocate to a vacation they didn't use. Um, So that's been an interesting juggle with the calendar for sure. Hi there, Caitlin Peterson here. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know Business of Homes Future of Home Conference is back in person this fall, September 13th and 14th in New York City. It'll be two days of amazing conversations with leaders and innovators shaping the industry all together in one place. Get your tickets now at futureofhome.com. And of course, a huge thank you to our sponsors, the Creighton Barrel, CB2, and Creighton Kids Trade Program, High Point Market, Benjamin Moore, Mitchell Goldbob Williams, Hunter Douglas, Afterpay, Pinterest, Universal Furniture, and EQ3. I'll be there, and I hope you'll join me. One of the things I've been meaning to ask you is, you've been mostly running your business solo up until recently, and I'm curious, how do you think about that? How did how do you decide whether to keep things small or to grow your team and start delegating the work? I've been giving it so much thought over the past like six months. I think there was a few, I don't know if it was on trade tales or business of these designers that were like, I've made a conscious decision to stay small, mm-hmm. to, to yeah. not have a team. And like, I think that conversation is fascinating because I think there's so much pressure in, even in the Instagram design community, in the design community to have this like big team. Mm-hmm. And it makes your firm feel more valid for some reason. Someone just told me that last week, that being able to say, you know, oh, my team will get back to you, even though it's yes. you and one other person. Yep. And I think there's so much stigma attached to it. So I think it's, you know, it's fascinating to think about what it looks like to have a small firm. And, you know, I think now, especially because people are doing so much remotely and, you know, using 1099s, independent contractors to do their work. So it's it's an interesting conversation. But yeah. Is Were you always solo or did you have a team and you've now shrunk down? I've had independent contractors. So I've always had a bookkeeper. And then I've had, um, you know, I had the same CAD guy who's been doing CAD work for me for about five years. And mm-hmm. that's it. And I recently, 
<laughs> um, that's going to be changing because I, I need to, you know, like I understand I'm at the point where I'm like, I need someone that's fully devoted to my schedule um, mm-hmm. that can make timelines and, you know, that doesn't have 15 other clients. So I am hiring. I did hire somebody. But if, for me, it's it's always interesting because I'm like, if you get the work done and you're, per, for me, I'm like, I want to be doing all the design work. Well, this is mm-hmm. why I do this. This other stuff is not fun to me. I don't want to delegate design work. I, you know, if someone wants to place the orders for me, that's great. But I said, where? Cl- where will you where will you hire or where are you looking to kind of have someone take some things off your plate? So the role that I just hired for um, is kind of like a designer manager role. You know, I really she's got great experience. She's very business savvy. She's very design savvy and she's extremely organized in terms of project management. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the conversations that we've had, you know, she's going to kind of direct the growth that she feels is important needs to happen. And, you know, you get to a point with the business where you're like, maybe I'm a really good designer and like, I don't know how to grow a business or I don't, you know, I need some help there or, you know, I'm tired of working, you know, 70 hours a week or mm-hmm. just need to put on the brakes a little bit. So you get to a point where you're like, I don't want to say no to these projects. These projects all sound good. So I mm-hmm. want to find a way to say yes to them. That's what prompted the hiring. That's exciting. Yeah, totally. How do you how do you see that changing your role? Or do you see that changing your role in, the, in your firm? I mean, I think I, w- I would like to get a little a few less emails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> When you figure out how to do that, please call me back. <laughs> I'm just watching my computer screen just explode with emails as we're talking. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would like to find a way where, you know, someone else is taking on some of that, just because I think that's the stuff that can really burn you out. Um, mm-hmm. I hate procurement, so I don't like placing orders. It's absolutely miserable to me. Um, <laughs> I think the system is so antiquated that you have to, you know, send 15 emails to get a swatch of fabric or 18 different shipping addresses and a fill out a trade form and then a credit card form that's a mile long. Um, all of those things I would like taken off. I don't love tracking and mm-hmm. following up on product and sending damaged product back and, you know, all that stuff I do not enjoy. Um, that being said, I do like the kind of mix of responsibilities. You know, if I've gone through a phase where I'm heavily designing all the time, that you know, a little break from that too. So um, I think someone that can share the load a little bit would be nice. What, when you look, when you are looking back, what is the one thing you wish you had known from the get-go of launching your own firm? Oh, how much work it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is, I think the, I, the mentality around, the, you know, you own your own business and you can take vacations whenever you want. And like, you can that's work whatever lie, hours. Right? Like, I think that's going away a little bit now because mm-hmm. I think more, I don't know if it's, maybe it's just because I'm engrossed in the community, but like more people seem to have businesses and like the struggle is highlighted a little bit more, but like, man, I never thought that I would work so much for a, such a sustained period of time. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, having your own small business is just so much tenacity to like get up every day and, you know, work, do the same thing. You just have to be willing to work so much. And I, I couldn't tell you last time I took a vacation where I wasn't answering emails. I mean, mm-hmm. I had, I had no idea. Would you do it again? <laughs> for sure. It's the only, <laughs> it's the only career that's ever stuck for me. So <laughs> oh, I love as tempting it. as it would be to go back to scuba diving. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, hear more great podcasts, check out new products, or browse job openings, head on over to businessofhome.com. If you have a note for the show or a story of your own to share, I'd love to hear from you, and you can email me at tradetales at businessofhome.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the show. Trade Tales is produced by me, Caitlin Peterson, and Fred Nicolaus. 
This episode was edited by Fred Nikolaus and Caroline Burke, and our theme music is by Kyle Scott Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks.